0: Every time I open my mouth at church, I get myself into trouble. Now, every time I open my mouth at church, I have to be careful. Two weeks ago, I blurted out awake, alive, and appreciated. Immediately, A petition was circulating around the room for me to incorporate those words into my next sermon. So while I was awake to hear the request, I was alive to know that it is not always possible. And I appreciated the challenges that you are throwing at me. Though I cannot comply this week with your encouragement, I'm going to be in the general ballpark with the letter A. If you're not happy with the delivery, you can get your refund at the door. (laughs) Now that my children have all grown up and have families of their own, I can reflect back on the many roles that I play as a father, raising my family. All these roles achieve a definite goal or serve a common purpose. I play the role of provider who ensures most of it, most, if not all of my family's needs are being met satisfactorily. I have to look after my family's physical necessities, such as food, clothing, and shelter. I have to care for their intellectual pursuits, such as schooling, education, and learning. I have to manage their recreational requirement, such as as, uh, exercise, sports, and fun and games. I have to develop their potentials, encouraging them to try various forms of artistic expressions, such as music, drawing, painting, sculpturing, poetry. I have to guide their spiritual needs, such as devotion, prayer, and serving the Lord. I have to teach my family the basic survival skills, such as cooking, shopping, banking, and interpersonal interpersonal interaction, and look out for dangers. I have to encourage them to take risks, to strive for excellence, to look for improvement and to change the world. While I juggle between all these roles that I want to do and hope to carry out, I succeed in some and fail miserably in others. Although I decide to be a perfect father, I'm limited by three factors. Time, energy, and brain power. For example, when, my, when the children were in public school, they came and asked me to help them with their math homework. If I have an important presentation tomorrow, I have, to, I have the energy and the brain power, but I can't afford the time because I have to prepare for the presentation. If I come home at the end of an exhausting workday and feeling that tired, I have the time and the brain power, but I just don't have the energy. As the children attend high school, especially in their senior years, they came and asked me to help with their calculus homework. I have time, And I also have the energy. I just don't have the brain power to help them. We have limitations both physically and mentally. We are bound physically by the world, by the galaxy, by the universe universe around us. We are governed by unseen forces. Around us just such as gravitation, electrical, nuclear, magnetic and cosmic. We occupy a definite volume of space. When we are here, we cannot be there at the same time. However, modern men have adapted to various levels of multitasking to squeeze in as much life as possible in our short stay on this earth. The kids nowadays are very good at listening to music and doing homework at the same time. Or else they are typing... Up their essay on the computer while Snapchatting or WhatsApping with their friends. We drive and talk on the cell phone at the same same time, though it is not le- though it is not legal. On a news report some time ago, an OPP officer actually stopped a driver who was cooking his breakfast at the front seat. But I don't care how good you are multitasking if you're here you cannot be there simultaneously nobody can be physically at different places at the same time however god is not limited by time energy and brain power the god we believe in is infinite in strength and power he is infinite in wisdom he is the author of time unlike us god is bound by none yes He can be here and there at the same time. He dwells in every believer. His abode is in heaven. He transforms us into the image of his beloved Son. Our Heavenly Father can carry out his divine purposes in everything he does. We are going to be looking at five aspects of Christ's ministry. Knowing Christ's ministry is of paramount importance, to every believer. Why did Christ come to save us? What did Christ do that impacts our ultimate destiny? What is the significance of Christ going to heaven? What does Christ do while he is in heaven? How do we know our salvation is secure and our hope of his second coming is not in vain? I have arranged What I am going to talk about using the letter A. They are admonition, atonement, ascension, advocacy, and assurance. To comprehend and appreciate the ministry of Christ, we have to be familiar with what Christ has said. For those who own the Bible who have what Christ has spoken printed in red, it is easier to distinguish at a glance. Just because you can identify what Christ has said easily, it does not automatically mean that you will be more knowledgeable. When was the last time that you have spent your devotion or Bible study on everything that Christ has said? Just a warning before I launch into the main passage because the scripture tells us in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Ammonition. Christ's ministry of admonition can be found throughout the Gospels. Ammonition is the act of admonishing. Admonish means to reprove, urge, Advice and warn. The first admonition that we are going to look at is Matthew 5.20. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. What were the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Why did Christ admonish the people? to exceed the righteousness of these religious leaders. Let's turn to Matthew 6, uh, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 8, and then from 16 to 18. So if you got your Bible handy, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Verse 1 Take heed that ye do not your arms before men, to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thy arms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. Verse 2. Three, But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thy alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets. That they may be seen of men, verily really I say unto you, they have their reward, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and while thou and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father which is in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. but when ye pray. Use not vain repetitions, as the heathens do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Verse 8. Be not ye therefore light unto them, for your father knoweth what things ye have need of, before ye ask him. Verse 16. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites, of a set countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, and anoint thy head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy father which is in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Christ was condemning the people against the mere externalism in religion. The scribes and Pharisees might look pious and spiritual, but their hearts were not in the right place. They sought in the praises of man. They wanted to glorify themselves. As Pastor Jack used to say, the heart of the matter It's the matter of the heart. Christ is also warning us to guard against religious externalism, where we seek the method rather than the master, where we seek programs rather than the person of Jesus Christ, where we seek strategy rather than the Savior. We're not to have only a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, as stated in 2 Timothy 3.5. Three, five. The second admonition that we are going to look at is found in Matthew chapter 5, 43 and 44. Ye have heard that it had been said, thou shalt love thine neighbors and hate thine enemies. But I say unto thee, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despite fully use you, and persecute you. I don't think Christ is making life difficult for you and me. He wants us to learn to see things from God's perspective. We have to acquire the heavenly vision to see beyond the surface of matters. If we believe that John 3.16 is true, then for God so loved the world can be understood to be for God so loved the sinners. It is because the world only has sinners. We are all sinners according to Romans 3.23. And God loves me who am a sinner. We have no problem with this one. God loves my enemy who is a sinner. Then we start to have problem When we see that Christ did not die only for my sins but everybody's sins including my enemies' sins, then we can see why Christ admonishes us to love, bless, and pray for our enemies. In the next few verses, Christ admonishes us to put our trust on eternal things instead of temporal things of this world. Matthew 16, verse 26. For what is a man profited? If he shall gain the whole world, And lose his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And also Mark 10 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And also Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21. Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth. Where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your, heart, your, where, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. My next example is Matthew seven fifteen. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravening, ravening wolves. Christ wants us to be aware of false religious leaders who pretend to be with us. They might be eloquent in their speech They may sound convincing in their theology. They may utter words and terms that impress you. They may relay testimonies that stir up your emotion. But their true intent is to take advantage of the vulnerabilities of the believers and lead them astray. The last example that I want to share with you can be found in John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Christ is admonishing us to walk with him, stay close to him, depending on him for all our strength and wisdom. Draw our nutrients and nourishment from him, because apart from abiding in Christ, we can accomplish nothing worthwhile, nothing that has eternal value and nothing that are pleasing to him. The few Bible passages that I have cited are only the tip of the iceberg. If you want to learn more what Christ admonishes us to do or not not to do, you have to set aside time to read what Christ has said as recorded in the New Testament. Atonement. Jesus died for our sins. We are no longer under the condemnation of a just and holy God. Atonement. The biblical use and meaning of the word must be sharply distinguished from the use in theology. In theology, it is a term which covers the whole sacrificial and redemptive work of Christ. In the Old Testament, atonement is the English word used to translate the Hebrew word, which means cover, coverings, or to cover. So atonement is therefore not a translation of the Hebrew, but purely a theological concept. In the Old Testament, the concept of atoning for sin referred to the temporary covering of sin by the sacrificial offerings. This provides a basis for temporary forgiveness of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, Romans 3.25. In forgiving sins in the Old Testament period, God was acting, acting in perfect righteousness. Since he anticipated the coming of his own son, a sacrificial lamb, which would in no way pass over or cover sin temporarily, but would take it away forever. John one twenty nine. Before we survey Christ's ministry of atonement in the gospel, we are going to read some of the Old Testament passages regarding atonement. Exodus 32 verse 30 And it came to pass on the, mor- on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have seen a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Perventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. Leviticus four twenty six, and you shall burn all his fat upon the altar, as the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall make an atonement for him as concerning his sin. And it shall be forgiven him. And also in Leviticus five sixteen, and he shall make amends for the harm that he have done in the holy thing, and shall add the fifth part thereto, and give it unto the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. And also in Numbers 6:11, And the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering, and make an atonement for him. For that he sinned by the dead, and shall hallow, he said, that same day. To understand the full impacts of Christ's atonement, we need to go to the book of Hebrews to look at the significance of his perfect sacrifice. Let's turn to uh, the book of Hebrews. We're going to read from chapter 10, verse 3 to 11, uh, to 17, I mean. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3. In those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sin every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offering and sacrifice for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Verse 8. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering, and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither has pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second under which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering of time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Verse 12 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days saith the lord i will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds will i write them and their sins and iniquity will i remember no more we're going to examine some of the statements christ made regarding this part of his ministry john ten eleven, i'm the good shepherd the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep matthew twenty twenty eight even as the Son of Man came not to be minister unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. In John 2.19, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And in John 2.21, but he spake of the temple of his body. As Jesus was crucified on the cross, his sins reflect the ministry of atonement. Jesus came to secure forgiveness for our sins. He is the perfect lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Luke twenty three, thirty four Then saith Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And Jesus bore the punishment and penalty we deserve. We were to be separated from God forever, to be burned in the lake of fire. Matthew 27 verse 48, and uh, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabacthani?" That is to say, "My God." My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus' atonement for our sins is completed without question. John 19, verse 30. When Jesus therefore has received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Though the crucifixion of Jesus is a historical fact, But the result of his atoning death continues to save people from their sins. Ascension. Revelation by the Lord Jesus Christ regarding his ascension can be found in the following passages in the Gospel of John. John chapter 7, 33 and 34. Then saith Jesus unto them, yet a little while am I with you. And then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am thither ye cannot come. John eight twenty one then said Jesus again unto them I go my way and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whither I go ye cannot come. And also in John twelve eight, for the poor always ye have with you, but me. You have not always. And again, in John thirteen, verse thirty-three, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say unto you, in John sixteen, ten, of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye. See me no more. And finally, John sixteen sixteen A little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and you and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. So the ascension of Christ was described both in the gospel of Luke and Mark. Luke twenty four, verse fifty and fifty one, and he led them out as far as to Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And also in Mark 16, verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. The description is rather brief, simple and straightforward. A little more detail was given in Acts 1-9. When he, when, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and the cloud received him out of their sight. What is the significance of the ascension of Christ? The ascension communicates Christ's glorification. Jesus' work here was done. Mark says, after the Lord Jesus has spoken to them, he was taken up in heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. The saints communicate that he was leaving earth in his bodily form and that he was going to the former place of glory, having won victory over death. Christ gave us the reason for his ascension. John 16:7 Nevertheless I tell you the truth It is expedient for you that I go away And if I go not away the comforter will not come unto you But if I depart I will send him unto you Imagine that the Holy Spirit did not come there would be no Pentecost If there was no Pentecost You and I would not be sitting here. We will be condemned for eternity. Another reason for Christ's ascension is that he went to prepare the heavenly abode for us. John 14, verse 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. We can live with hope every day of Christ's second coming. Advocacy. First John 2, 1 John 2.1 My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. <coughs> In the first place, believers should not sin. John tells us, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. What happens when believers sin? John tells us that Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father if we sin. An advocate is a person who pleads for or in behalf of another. In another word, an intercessor. Notice Christ is called our advocate with the Father and not advocate with God. It is impossible to have anything like the advocacy with God, because it implies that my relationship with God has not been settled righteously, legally and judicially. There are two links that bind us to Christ. First, there is the link of union. It is so strong that nothing can break it. The Lord himself has said, my sheep hears my voice, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. The second thing to bind us to Christ is the unbroken fellowship. However, every time that we sin, the fellowship with Christ is broken. We need to confess our sins and restore the fellowship with Christ. We need an advocate because we have a great adversary, Satan. An advocate is one who goes into court to represent you and plead for your case. You cannot do it yourself, but you go to your advocate, and he goes to plead your case against your adversary. So Satan is called in Revelation 12.10, I mean the accuser of our brethren which accuse them before our God day and night. The very moment we sin, the devil become, becomes the prosecuting attorney in the high court of heaven. The devil goes right in the presence of God and said, is that one of your Christians? Listening to what he's saying now, see what he's doing and you call him your child? But our Lord is there spreading his hands and showing his wounds and said, My Father, I have died for all their sins. He does not say if any man repents, we have an advocate. If any man confessed his sins, we have an advocate. If any man weeps over his sins, we have an advocate. What it actually said is if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The very moment I sin, Christ takes up my case long before I have done anything about it. As a result of Christ's advocacy, the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and applies to my conscience. So I can take the necessary step to restore the precious fellowship with our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Assurance. One of my favorite hymns is Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a forties of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Often when I think of the assurance of our salvation, I will think of what the Apostle Paul wrote in uh, Romans. Eight thirty-eight and thirty-nine. From persuaded, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This morning. I want us to look at the assurance from our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Since God cannot lie, all utterances from Christ are true. The world might be spinning around us at a frightening speed, but all believers can have complete assurance that our Lord and Savior is able to provide for our every need, protect us from all evil and from the evil one and be present with us all the time. When I was in grade school in Hong Kong, I remember reading a story about the father of modern China, Dr. Sun. He tried to convince the village people not to worship their idols at home or at the temple. So he took the people to the temple and said to them, you pray to these idols to protect you and your family, but these are just man made images. So he went up to an idol and broke off its arm and said to the villagers, If the God that you believe in cannot even protect itself, how can it protect you? Non believers may ask, How can Jesus be the Son of God when he cannot even protect himself from the crucifixion? by the Roman soldiers. Let's look at John 10, verse 17 and 18, which assures us of Christ's power over life and death. Therefore, does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. Let's look at John 10, 28 to 30, which assure us of our salvation. Once saved, always saved. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall my, any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Let's look at John 14, verse 3, which assure us of his second coming and our final destination. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Let's also look at John 14, verse 26 and 27, which assure us of his abiding presence and peace. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your, to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, peace I live with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid." Let's look at John sixteen thirty three, which assure us of Christ's sovereignty, and he is in complete control of the world. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And also look at Matthew 28. Verse 18 to 20, which assure us of his presence with us on this earth. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. And finally, Matthew eighteen twenty, which assures Christ's very presence with us now, right now. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Are you living day-to-day, moment-to-moment, based on the Savior's assurances? We have examined five aspects of Christ's ministry. They are admonition, atonement, ascension, advocacy, and assurance. Each aspect does not only stage the doctrine of our belief. But an in-depth and thorough understanding of these doctrines governs our outlook in life, determine our mode of behavior, and motivate our sincere desire to follow him. Once again, I challenge you to read everything that Christ has said in the New Testament. What Christ speaks, we listen. What Christ teaches, we learn. What Christ says, we do. What Christ commands, we obey. Before I end my sermon, I would like to leave you with this thought. The bad things about good sermons, that it will end. But the good things about bad sermons, that it also ends. They will. That you close in prayer for us, and then we will, we will sing uh, 392 of the Red Hymnal, the Sonnet Rock. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have in this wonderful country of ours to worship freely, and we thank you for the message that your servant Chris brought to us today. May we take it, its contents to heart, and may we use this sermon in our lives to enrich our walk with you. We ask that you will part us today uh, and that we may go out into the world and be effective witnesses for you. We ask this all in Jesus' precious and holy name.